Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today's episode is one of those episodes that I want you to kind of think about when people say that social media does not work or they don't see how social media could work. And this is a prime example of how social media could work. So one day, randomly, Andrea reached out. We had like this off topic conversation about her telling me her story about where she came from and, and like she's in Germany right now and I was telling her like okay you playing at my heartstrings like me and my family we just did this whole vacation in Germany so pound for pound I mean obviously I got to have you on the show it goes without saying say less so with that you know I like to give whoever I'm interviewing a particular nickname and as I'm looking at her connections some of her connections are my connections especially you guys remember Damon from season two the the SEO boss so with that what do you think I'm going to name this SEO boss? I can't name them the same thing. So with her keen detail for multi-languages, her nickname is going to be the Multilingual SEO Boss. So the floor is yours. I want you to tell the audience a little bit more about you. And what would you like to talk about today? Awesome. Thank you so much for the nickname. I'm, I'm, I appreciate the, the niche focus because uh, that's something that uh, I do in particular and kind of have, have built everything around, but just kind of to introduce myself. So my name is Adriana Stein. I'm originally from the US, but I've been uh, based in Hamburg, Germany for nearly eight years now. Uh, it's gone by super, super fast. Um, and lots of things have happened in that time. But I think to kind of understand like a bit about my story and how I built uh, my marketing agency, AS Marketing, uh, it, it's very closely tied into why I'm actually in Germany. <laughs> so. Um, I originally moved here after I finished uh, my bachelor's degree um, to get a uh, to do my master's degree here because um, little do most Americans know uh, outside of the U.S. a lot of people don't have to pay for college. Um, in fact, it's free. Uh, and in Germany, the cool thing is um, even when you come here uh, as an expat, it's also free if you go to a public university. So that was kind of the original draw in for me. Um, but of course, for a lot of those programs, you have to learn German. Um, so you may have like a bilingual program or even a program that's fully, uh, in, in German, which is like very scary, uh, thought, I think to, to move very far away and, and do a whole program in another language. But I was lucky to find one, uh, that was bilingual. And so I originally came here, was learning German. I was in a German language school, um, which was like a full-time job in and of itself, just trying to like settle in into a new country, learn a new language in a really rapid manner. I had basically seven months um, to learn C1 German, which is not the highest level of German, but the second uh, highest level. This is like how um, European languages are, they're split into tiers based on your fluency. And I had to have this level uh, so that I could take this um, test for the university here and I had to pass this test. Um, and so I spent like loads of hours learning German, um, and working my butt off to to try to pass this test. Uh, and I took the test, um, which strangely was after the master's program had started. So I had actually been in the master's program for like two weeks, I think. 
and had like started already studying. Um, and then I took this test and I missed it by three points. Hmm. And it was like heartbreaking um, because I I had worked so hard, like I had to pay privately for language school. So I had just come from, you know, finishing college in the US. I had student debt and then I had paid more money <laughs> to learn German. Um, and I was not allowed to work here as well because I was on a language learning visa. So I had no income um, and I, I failed this test. Um, uh, but then I took the results to my professors at the university and they were like, we don't care. It's three points. Like, it's fine. You've been in class. Like, you're going to be fine. They wrote a letter to admissions uh, and mid, uh, admissions rejected me anyways, uh, because of that's like the typical bureaucracy in Germany. They're very, very strict. There's no exceptions to anything. So you're out, you're out. Yeah. Uh, and I lost my my student visa basically with this. So I had to go back to the foreigner's office and tell them about the very bad news. And they were equally as unsympathetic, uh, didn't care at all about how hard I'd worked. Um, and they were basically like, you have used all of your time on your language learning visa, which is what I was on before I was accepted um, into the university. Uh, so you have two weeks to find uh, work as a freelancer uh, because your U.S. degree is also not recognized here as it's not from the EU. So you won't be able to get a job as an employee. So this is basically your option. Um, go freelance, find three clients to write you uh, a letter of intent that they want to work with you. Do this in two weeks because that's all the time we're going to give you uh, or you could leave. And <laughs> that was uh, that was probably one of the worst days of my life, I must say. Um I, I remember going home and I probably cried for like a good 24 hours because I had worked so hard and I'm, I'm a very like overachiever type of personality. So I, it's very, very hard for me to like accept failure, but with the time that I had and, you know, the money that I had spent and the effort that I had given over all of those months, I was like, okay, well, I don't just want to like give up and leave. So I'm going to try and find something. Um, so after I took my one day, like having a pity party, um, then I just went into action and was like, okay, then I'm going to find some clients. So luckily I had a friend of mine who was, um, she was an English teacher and she'd done some translations and things like this as well. So I just asked her like, what, what do I do? Like, how do you find clients? Um, you know, help me out here. And she told me about this website. Um, there was a website called eBay Kleinanzeigen, which is like small ads. So you can, for free, you can put um, like little ads, little descriptions of what you do as, as a service. And then you can find um, companies to work with that way. And so basically that's what I did. I just wrote there like, you know, my German is pretty decent. By now I'm a native English speaker. Um, I have a writing background so I can do like translations and things. So who needs some help? And uh, somehow the universe decided to to help me um, in that. And I was able to find the clients and, and to find um, the work enough to satisfy the foreigner's office. And so I started freelancing. Um, and what I kind of stumbled into, which I know a lot of people in um, the SEO world in, in particular, we don't like set out. It's not like our, our dream when we're 12 years old or something. I mean, yeah. SEO, I guess, didn't really exist that long ago. But um, to to kind of go into that um, field of expertise and that ended up being what I did because those were 
the first jobs that I found, the first clients that I had, and it became this crossover between um, the German market and the U.S. market because I had that understanding from the language perspective. And uh, basically, I found out over time there were a lot of companies who needed this help. And so I decided to just kind of stick at it as a freelancer, and it became um, so popular that I decided to scale out into my agency now, AS Marketing, and we've also expanded a lot of the language expertise. Um, so we support clients now in over 30 languages, and there's always a, a native speaker like myself who, you know, works, I would work within the U.S. market, for example, because I'm from the U.S. We have, you know, people for the German market, people for the French market. We've had projects in, in lots of different regions by now. And so um, that's kind of where I'm at today, which there's a lot that has happened in that time. But um, sometimes good things happen from a bad scenario and, you know, life reorients you in the direction that you're supposed to be. So, I mean, with that, I mean, that's a hell of a journey, a hell of a story. And I, I think I read an article about you and you were saying that pretty much one of your mistakes in the earlier stages was underbidding yourself. So I want you to kind of talk about that because obviously the like, SEO is more like a confidence thing, right? I mean, as you start to prove yeah. SEO works and you start to prove it at scale, you start to prove it that it works on multiple different companies, the strategies that you have, then obviously the confidence there to charge more. So I want you to kind of talk about like, why did you charge as le like the, the lower number versus what you're charging right now? How did that transition happen? Yeah. Um, so when you're starting out, I think a lot of it, I, I started out quite at a low rate because I was, you know, I just finished um, college uh, or university in the UK, uh, as it's termed, and I just needed to survive. <laughs> so I think that was kind of like the first thing was I just want to have like an income. And so I'm going to do that, you know, at, at kind of like an intern level or, or junior level uh, yeah. rate just to like get some work and live, like pay my rent and eat. <laughs> um, and then I started to join some Facebook groups. This is when Facebook um, was really kind of starting into becoming more of this platform for communities. Mm -hmm. And so I joined a lot of um, communities around SEO, which is where a lot of um, consultants like myself were finding work. And through kind of looking at posts like that, um, I could kind of start to learn where to price myself. And it got a little bit more and a little bit more. And then there was this one particular group um, where I learned a lot from them because they were like so adamant on minimum rates. And I remember seeing like their rates compared to mine. And I was just like in shock, like, oh my gosh, I mean, I have more language skills than they do. Um, but, you know, I'm charging like 75% less than they were. Like I need to up my game. And that really gave me the confidence uh, to do that. And um, one major thing, as well that I had to to kind of figure out from the agency side because the agency side went through that same kind of transition around rates was then th the next level of of going from hourly rates to to project rates and retainers which is like a whole other struggle that you go through when you're trying to scale mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it is like you said it's about confidence um, because SEO and 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 not not just like as a skill, but like trying to do SEO, like doing SEO from, I think also from in-house, but certainly from the agency side or the consulting side, 
you have to be able to sell yourself. You have to be able to sell your skills. You have to be able to sell the impact. And so that's literally like half the job is like having confidence to sell what you can do and, and what impact SEO can have, what impact marketing can have. And that's like a whole other like area of expertise that I really had to just learn on the fly and from doing like tons and tons and tons of discovery calls and, you know, learning what worked and what didn't. And, and confidence certainly played a major role in that because, you know, when you're selling, if you don't believe in your own message, then definitely the other person listening won't either. Yeah. So you've, you've got to believe in yourself. I think that's a hell of a segue because, I mean, in that same article, you were talking about one thing that you wanted to learn earlier on, wishing that if you had that opportunity, you would have learned that before you got into it and it was sales. So I want you to kind of talk about, like, do you think sales is more so a strategy of building confidence or is it more so a strategy of the psyche of the individual on how to convert what you're selling to them? I think it's both Um, because, you know, like I said, you you have to be confident in your own message in order to sell it but i will say what comes with that confidence or what what helps build that confidence is experience mm-hmm. and especially when you have when you're working in the seo industry or the marketing industry in general um then a big part of that comes from like having the data to back up what you say mm-hmm. so as you go along you start to do more projects where you have more data and then you can understand what businesses actually need, what they need to hear. Um, And one interesting thing too, is there's always two levels of this. So you spoke about like the psyche of the other person listening, like who who you're selling to. There's two levels to this, um, especially as as you're trying to work with bigger companies. There's your direct contact, and then there's the stakeholders above them who are giving them budgets. And Mm -hmm. so you have to actually sell to both of those levels. And sometimes, especially when you get to work with with larger companies, like we do at my, at my agency, a lot of the time, we may not even get a chance to directly sell to the stakeholder. So you have to put in the messaging that's going to satisfy the stakeholder so then that your marketing contact can go and sell you to the stakeholders and without you being there a lot of the time. So there's that. And then there's just your own confidence, which can come from data. So data is going to help you back up your, your pitch and, you know, how you construct things. Um, the, the bigger the companies that you work with, the more data they want, the more proof that you want that you can do what you say you're doing. So a lot of it just comes from like over time, just practicing it and, and refining what you do. And um, especially if you're in marketing consulting, just trying to use as much data as you can to back up what you say. So, I mean, kind of going back to you being an overachiever and you said like you had the, the, the hurdles of kind of learning German, but, you know, German pretty much came to you. You, you shorted yourself by three points, but that's not the last language that you stopped at or probably the first one. So I want you to kind of talk about like you also know Turkish, you also know Spanish, German and English. So the combination of these four languages, like why did you pick it? Because I mean, Turkish is not a language that's something that someone just wakes up on a random Tuesday and say, hey, I want to speak Turkish, right? <laughs> Spanish and German. Yeah. But I want you to kind of figure out and talk about that journey of learning these different languages and how have those been beneficial to what you do? Yeah. Um, so I started uh, learning Spanish pretty young in school. Um, not young enough. I wish it was like a lot more intense Spanish learning from from younger. I think that's how um, school in the U.S. really should be. That's that's how it is here in Europe a lot of the time. 
Um, but I guess I was probably in middle school and, and early high school when I started learning Spanish because that was we had another language requirement and that was the only other language offered. I do think if you're living in the U.S., speaking Spanish is super, super helpful and, and definitely worthwhile if you want to travel as well. So that was kind of my thinking there just to continue that. Um, and I always really loved other languages and other cultures. Um, I've read really a lot um, during middle school and high school and other languages kind of unlock new ways of thinking and new opinions. And that's always been really interesting for me. So that kind of motivated me as well when I was in college to study abroad. Um, and I was able to get into a program in Spain because I could speak Spanish. Um, and it was, I would say, like a really rudimentary level of Spanish when I went there. Uh, but because I stayed with a host family who didn't speak English, I really had to find every way possible to say something in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some really funny instances um, where we didn't understand each other because of this. Uh, and that's then how I also found out um, about this process in Germany as well, um, that you can you can study for free because after my um, after I finished my program in Spain, then I traveled around a bit because I was already there and I had the rest of the summer. Um, and so that's when I kind of figured out um, that I wanted to move to Germany and go through the story that I told you at the beginning of this. Uh, and then um, the Turkish part comes from my husband is Turkish. So I met my husband here in Germany. Um, and we always really confuse people because, um, you know, I'm American, he's Turkish, but we live in Germany. And everyone's always like, wow, how do you <laughs> how do you handle that? Well, um, you know, like I mentioned, I, I love other languages and other cultures. So that's kind of, I think, uh, a lot to do with it. And um, we communicate mostly in English, but like some German phrases as well, some Turkish phrases as well here and there. And his family only speaks Turkish. So I've tried to learn the basics. Like I'm I'm nowhere near um, fluent or anything. I just know like very basic conversational things because um, Turkish is a very difficult language. It's even more difficult than German. I know how some of like the grammar works and whatnot. So, but my goal in, in the future is to do another sort of like immersion experience mm -hmm. where I can um, become a lot more fluent in Turkish because I, I really, it's it's hard, you know, sometimes when you, when I have like dinners with him and his family or we, we go to Turkey quite often um, and just, you know, not understanding everyone, but it's also something you kind of become used to when you live abroad. So I would think what I mean, part of you marrying someone from from the Turkey and being in Germany and traveling to Spain, I think it kind of goes back to your original degree of anthropology. Right. I mean, obviously, understanding yeah. culture is to that extent. I mean, you've been addicted to it for a, a period of time. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, but I would think that you've had an addiction for that. Right. But then I want to go yeah. back to your, your original addiction. I want to travel way, 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 way back. And I want to kind of figure out how does being hooked on animals then turn into being hooked on personalities so like how did that transition happen because in your earlier days you wanted to be a veterinarian so let's talk about that yeah. what was your, why were you so hungry to be kind of, kind of compelled by animal versus now you're compelled by humans yeah um so i'm from a very very small town in eastern oregon there's less than two thousand people there uh, a lot more animals so hence kind of my obsession with animals my first job was working on a farm I grew up riding horses. I could um, ride my own horse by the time I was three. Um, both my grandparents have um, or used to have horse ranches. And so 
I was really surrounded by animals growing up and I really loved them. And, you know, being that typical like 12 year old girl who loves animals, then a lot of us say that we want to be a vet. That's like the first, <laughs> the first kind of career aspiration a lot of us have in that context. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I was reading a lot um, and this was kind of my way to experience more of the world because where I grew up, it was so limiting. I mean, the, the closest um, big city, like big, big, big city, I guess, um, was Portland, which is six hours away. We had um, what we what we would call a big city, um, which was La Grande. That's like 10,000 people. So wow. to some, that's like a, another, just another tiny city. It's not big, um, but that was about an hour and a half away. So I lived, I, I grew up, I think, nearly as remote as a person can um you know i used to ride my horse to work sometimes not even joking even when i was a teenager um we have to have a car from from very young to get anywhere there's no bus or anything like that um not a lot of diversity among the people or opinions and ideas and things like that and so uh, I spent a lot of time reading and and that's where I learned that there's a whole lot more to the world than the kind of bubble that I grew up in. And I really just wanted to experience more. Um, and I find people to be really fascinating. Um, I find, you know, how someone comes to believe something to be super fascinating. Um, and it's funny because a lot of people ask me, well, you went you study anthropology like how does that relate to marketing and i'm like it relates to everything in marketing That's every single thing literally it's about like what you know the messaging and writing like i had to do so much writing when i studied anthropology and marketing is all about writing um it's all about understanding the person you're writing for mm -hmm. the target audience you're writing for understanding their culture their you know the way that they think and so it's pretty neat that i have been able to apply that directly um so i think what you said about me being obsessed with this kind of thing it's still true um probably will never go away to be honest <laughs> so kind of building up on this story and i think like you're you're heading in the direction that i wanted you to head into so the, you said writing several different times and again i could talk to you about keywords because you're an seo professional so the keyword that you said was writing yeah. writing 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 so you do a major right i mean obviously anthropology was on one side the other side was english which kind of leads yeah. to like all the writing you've been doing as an seo professional at scale with blogs so I want you to kind of talk about that because I think most people, they don't think that blogs still exist or they don't know how to leverage blogs, but obviously you've been doing it for a period of time and you've been successful at it. So I want you to talk about like how have what you've learned on your early days have transpired into being more of an SEO blog writer. Yes. So I think that is kind of, I would say the one downside of like the traditional um, university or or college like writing degree is they teach you a very different way of writing than what is actually used in most of the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did really help me to understand how to like compose a topic and how to you know do research on things. Research is very very important for for SEO and and for marketing. So that's definitely a major one. Um, how to kind of like format ideas into something interesting. So all of that has been very helpful. I was also luckily just naturally gifted at writing. Maybe it comes from my mom. She also did a lot of writing as well. Um, so I was kind of everyone's like 
it, you know, even in, in high school, um, definitely in college, I was always everyone's go-to, like, can you edit this for me? Like, does this sound good? I was always that person just naturally. Um, and so, of course, I had to do two degrees that involved tons of writing, um, as well as my minor, which was writing as well. So I, I spent, yeah, my whole time in college, like writing and reading, um, which is awesome. That's kind of the nerd in me. Um, but as I had to transition to how to do that for SEO, it's like a whole other style. It's a whole other process um, than, you know, writing something for fun or writing something for academic research. And that's where I was really lucky um, within my first couple clients that I could work directly with the marketing managers and and learn how to kind of format things and certain structures and um, you know, think about keywords and search intent and things like that. From when I started, it was a lot more simple. I think SEO now is so, so complex. Um, it's a whole lot more than content as well. Um, so you mentioned blogs, for sure. You you can do a lot with, with blogs. Um, that's still very relevant. Um, but you can do a lot across the entire website that involves SEO. So SEO now is is really about how can you create content across your entire site structure, your entire like content database, um, you know, everything on your website to um, to get certain types of content to rank, um, build topical, topical authority for those. So things that are um, that, you know, very well as a brand, you can prove expertise really well as a brand and then, you know, use that kind of information to inform your reader, engage your reader and, and generate conversions. So blogs are like one part of it. I wouldn't say that a blog alone can really do that. Not not in today's SEO world. Uh, Ten years ago, yeah. Maybe even five years ago, yeah. Um, but I think now it's really focused on like the whole. How do you how do you build up topical authority with the whole website? How do you build up a good user experience with the whole website? Um, how can you prove that you know what you're talking about with um, expertise, personalization, especially in the age of AI now, um, this is a, a huge, huge um, topic going on. Um, but then also the technical side of things. I was last week at um, Google Search Central's event in Zurich. So this is an event um, where Google does some talks about what is kind of changing um, within their products and things that relate to SEO. We had some community speakers as well um, who are very experienced in SEO and kind of explaining some of the trends that they're seeing. Um, and it's, it's so, so technical, like it, it kind of, I feel like I'm starting to, to fall behind on the, on the technical part because, you know, I, I would say like 60% of the conversation was about structured data, you know, and image optimization and things like this. So, um, of course, still SEO at the end of the day has to be a good user experience. It has to be helpful for your actual audience and inform them, but there's like this whole other part that's the technical side as well. So. I guess in the end, when you come from like a writing background to doing that, um, you have to really switch on two sides of your brain, you know, um, two different parts of your brain when you're doing SEO, which I think is why also this is kind of perfect for me, because on the one side, I get to be very analytical um, within the technical part, within the data part. But then I can also be a little bit creative with the writing part, too, which is um, that's that's what I love. But I, I, I like having some challenges. And so. I think SEOs are very interesting people because we we tend to like flow somewhere in the middle. Like we're not a scientist, but we're not an artist. You know, we're we're kind of somewhere in in the middle, which is pretty cool. 
Well, I, I want the listener to think about that. I mean, you're saying that you're, you're not an artist, you're not a scientist, but you're a blend of both. But you are in, in a class by yourself because not only do people specialize in English only SEO, well, you're doing SEO in multi languages. So I want to talk about like those unfair advantages to what you have. Because, prime example, if you're doing SEO for YouTube, right? You could definitely do it in English all day, every day. But if you take that same exact video and you transcribe it in another language or multiple other languages, now you have a, a way larger target audience, billions versus just millions to have opportunity to convert. So I want you to talk about how are you leveraging the multi-languages in what you're doing and how does that help your clients? Yes. Yeah, so I think before looking even at the technical side, it's it's been an interesting trend, I guess, of of why really um, we specialize in this at AS Marketing. And that has a lot to do with the competition in SEO. And a lot of companies previously, they were just focused solely on English markets. It was like international SEO was basically the equivalent of like marketing in English to the US, <laughs> which is actually not, uh, it's not really true, but that was kind of like, that was the strategy behind it, you know, or global English or something like this. But that's not really where international SEO is today. Uh, and, the, and the reason being is that with all of this competition um, and a lot of things that have happened just within the market, you know, with, the, with COVID, um, with recessions, things like that, companies have had to diversify their audiences. And you can't do English SEO and do really well in the German market, for example, or do really well in the French market. Um, it doesn't work. A lot of people here don't speak English. They have their own language that is just as cool. Um, they have their own ways of thinking um, that are just as relevant. And this is one of the best ways to really personalize um, the, the messaging going forward. And so a lot of companies have kind of realized, okay, so we need to go a lot more personal. We need to go a lot more local and do a lot more in other languages. Mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 hurdle that comes with is uh, one, someone who actually speaks the language, uh, which is why a lot of companies turn to an agency um, like myself, because it can be very hard. Um, for example, if you're a US company trying to start a whole marketing department in Germany, it's very difficult. Um, you have to actually establish a whole other entity for that, um, set up your operations to function for that market. It's kind of a lot. Um, so a, a much more efficient way is, is to to try to go with an agency for that sort of resource. Um, if not myself, then please at least find you know like a consultant or something, um, because a lot of the a lot of the issues that we find is that, um, for example, a, a company will just do a mass translation of their website, you know, English to German or English to France or English to Norwegian or something, depending on the target language and. When you actually look at that as a native speaker of those languages, there's huge problems. It sounds so strange. Um, the messaging doesn't really work for that market. Um, you know, you, you can tell this is this is a big limitation of large language models. Um, so any sort of tool that uses um, a lot of information from other languages, um, other written content like ChatGTP or a lot of AI functions off the same model. They're just looking at a big conglomerate of like written stuff and how it's phrased together. And it's not actually how people talk and how people think, and there's no context for that. So when you're trying to expand into a new market, 
to a point where you actually have growth and conversions, you have to really think about how can we go local with our messaging? How can we do this with the correct language resource? Uh, and then how does that work technically too across that channel? Like you, you mentioned YouTube, for example, um, any sort of engine search engine optimization, whether that's YouTube, um, whether that's Google, whether that's another search engine, um, TikTok actually also functions off of the same concept um, as SEO with you know searching for certain um, phrases and matching content with that. Uh, it has to use that local approach to work in that new market. So you need to localize everything into that other language, um, you know, look at the results that come up when they're searched in that other language. Um, very important for SEO, especially is looking at competitors uh, because the competitors in different markets are totally different than what you'll see in uh, in the US, in global English even. Um, and the thing that you always have to remember too when you're expanding is that these competitors, these local competitors, they've already been providing a positive local experience for that customer, for that target audience, probably for years, a lot of the time. That's why they're established and that's why people buy from them and trust them. So if you wanna come in as a international company and have a presence in that market, you have to do that even better than those companies or it's not going to work. And so if you just try to do some like, you know, weird mishmash of AI translations that is not going to work. You're wasting your money, and just just don't do don't don't do that type of approach um, because you're you you can't compete um, with the competitors already there. So there's a lot that goes into that, um, but I think that's kind of like just getting started. The the things to be mindful of. So let's just play devil's advocate with that, right? I mean, you don't think that. Let's say there's three company profiles, right? One company profile is 100% English. They, they're not even trying to convert for the secondary market, right? Then you're saying it's the premium conversion that somebody actually sat down and converted converted that terminology into the local region terminology, just not a, a swap for, for content. And then the middle grade company that actually is attempting to bridge out from the 100% English and they're using AI and they're converting this content. Do you not think that that individual company is a little bit better off than the 100% English company because they're attempting to then become the, the premium company? So I think it depends a bit on the context. Um, we actually, one of our partners is a translation kind of tool, uh, but we are very clear when we do like co-marketing initiatives with them of the context. So the, the context with this is, for example, an e-commerce company who is already selling products in another market and they just want to, you know, provide a better customer experience, provide, um, you know, more localization, um, get more products listed correctly, especially within things like structured data, uh, which is how Google understands what's on the page, especially when there's a lot of images, um, things like that. You can start that way. Yes, um, and it and it can help you generate conversions. But if you have um, really expensive products, um, or you have like you're in B two B e commerce, so you sell very very expensive products um, to large companies that have multiple decision makers, or if you're in pure B two B, so B two B SaaS or IT or consulting, this kind of thing, that approach, just translating your website and expecting conversions to come from that, it will not happen because it's too, what you're selling is too complicated. Uh, you, you need, you need, you need a better 
localized explanation of those things. So that's why I say like certain contexts, it can, it can help you out. Um, but the other thing to consider too is, and we, we've had multiple clients in this situation, they have used um, some format of um, programmatic SEO, for example, or they've went to like a translation agency just to, you know, very quickly translate their whole website. Um, and what we found is the user experience of this is, is very, very terrible. And, or, you know, some part of the translation has been done completely incorrectly. Um, we've had a recent client that went through this. They, they paid tens of thousands to a translation agency to translate their website. Um, and it just did not work in German at all. Like it was the phrasing of it was terrible. Like it messed up all of the structure. And then what that has created is a ton of follow-up dev costs. So where you may have seen a shortcut with some sort of mass translation, um, what that could hurt you with in the end is all of your fixing costs. And that's one of the biggest roadblocks actually to being successful in SEO is if you get stuck on fixing, 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 um, which happens a lot in, in multi-language, mm -hmm. then you can't really grow. You have to get to the point where you're like building and scaling and you're not just fixing, you know, little things that add up and add up and add up and, and you know, decrease the customer experience. Um, because I can for sure say in, in, especially in certain markets that are very particular, like Germany and France, like you have to be on your game to really, you know, build up that trust with that kind of audience who's very used to that local experience. And so they can tell if you have, you know, kind of done something only halfway, especially in B2B, that's, that's a major issue. So, I mean, I, I think with that, I mean, I, obviously I've seen the German language and I, and I know like they're the compounding aspect of 25 words that all, <laughs> so I want to talk about like long tail keywords. In the U.S., it kind of makes sense, right? You can kind of say, um, digital marketing strategy SEO for podcasts, but if you were to convert yeah. that into German, it would probably be like an astronomical long word. So I want you to kind of talk about how are you guys even doing long tail keywords for the German language? Yeah, so that's um, I think a major obstacle that um, we run into a lot with. Um, not just German, but the Nordic languages that do that as well. This is the same actually in Turkish. They have even longer words in Turkish uh, that are whole sentences that are just one gigantic word. Luckily, in German, they only have compound nouns, so it's not as bad. Um, but one of the biggest struggles, I think, in general, is that a lot of systems um, and products are really built on English, and they're built on um, you know, kind of American English standards. Um, we we have this problem a lot with Google ads that if you were to to localize that ad from English into another language, like Finnish, for example, the the character limit, like you could, it's so difficult to get that to fit. And so basically that's where we work with our our native speaker strategists and we kind of try and find a way to rephrase that so it can fit. Um, and so it can still kind of give off the same messaging, um, even if you've completely changed um, the original phrase, um, but maybe you you the, the the new idea kind of is still there. And so the the reader still gets the same point, um, but it's phrased a little bit differently to make sense um, within that language and within the space that you have. When it comes to SEO, there's a bit more space, of course, because we have, more text, um, but you still have 
the same sort of considerations, which is why you can't just go and, you know, take your keyword list and then, you know, put it into Google Translate and then it's done because um, one, a lot of the time that will sound really strange in the other language. They can tell that it, it doesn't really work. Uh, but two, there's not even search volume. So there may be um, completely different um, phrases or ways of saying things um, in other languages that make a lot more sense within that market. Um, another example is we had um, an IT company that was expanding into Germany from the US. Uh, and we actually found a lot of the keywords their audience was searching for were Denglish. So a mixture of German and English. Um, so if you had purely done German content or purely done English content, neither would actually work for that market. You have to do a combination because it's IT. So th there are a lot of words that have crossed over from English um, into, into their specific jargon that they use and, and what they search for. And so that's where localization is super important just to figure out what phrases do the audience use and then look at, you know, within what what your your space is, your what your options are technically, and then try to make that worse work the best you can. Um, one question I get a lot too uh, is like if things are phrased, you know, not grammatically correct um, from a keyword versus into, um, you know, you have to put that like into the headlines or into the content like that. Um, always prioritize. Uh, good grammar, one, because that's what your reader is expecting if you do a bunch of like weird keyword stuffing that's very outdated SEO. Um, but also Google has um, become quite advanced in understanding semantics. So this is um, understanding the the context of something and how it's related to something else, because we have been trained uh, as users, as Google users, how to type for certain things uh, in a search engine that are not how we actually speak and it's not grammatically correct. But Google has understood that difference uh, and it's doing better and better in other languages. Mm. So maybe you take like a concept or a phrase, um, especially in a long tail keyword that can sound like strange if, you, if you're literally thinking of it grammatically, um, but just use it grammatically correct. And Google can understand that difference because it's, it's improved how it understands semantics. So playing off the, the, the whole the, the semantics area of what you're talking about, like with the introduction of AI, like AI, I would say potentially is going to become, you know, a variation of a search engine, right? Because I mean, it kind of takes the context of the region of what you're talking about, and it kind of thinks about it at scale, almost tries to think about it almost on a, a humane level versus Google is very analytical and structured. So I want you to kind of talk about the differences between those two. And where do you see like the, the area of uh, SEO growing with the, the onboarding of AI technology? Yeah, that's a big question. And it's something I think that is still developing. A lot of us don't really know. Um, even um, SGE, you know, the, the AI results in Google, they're not even legal yet in the EU. Uh, so it's hard to say how that will really affect that part of SEO. Um, whether that will ever even be legal here, honestly, is a good question because um, the EU is very, very against AI, I must say. Uh, Italy even banned it entirely in the beginning. So I think there's going to be kind of some divergence between um, English or even like US specific kind of marketing tactics and other language or let's say like EU language marketing tactics um, because of the limitations with AI. We can use some AI tools here, um, but it's not so much integrated into organic search, let's say. Um, but I will say a lot of people are using 
tools for specific cases. Um, I did quite a bit of research uh, initially. It's it's and if anyone's interested in reading more, um, I did a whole content series in the Wix SEO hub about applying AI to different types of use cases, um, B2B, e-commerce, complex topics, um, multi-language in particular, how does that work? Um, what I can say in, in, in general, multi-language, it's again, because of how um, large language models are limited, it's the same kind of limitation there when it comes to using AI, like for translation or for content production, it just doesn't understand context and nuances. And also if you consider the database uh, is is coming from a whole lot less in other languages than it is in English. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably a bit more advanced in English than other languages. So that's that's kind of one limitation. But um, where we have found AI to be useful on our team is more um, things like like VA type activities. Maybe you know things that probably don't take a lot of strategic thinking. Um, like we have. Uh, a note taker, an AI note taker in, in all of our meetings now, which has been super helpful because there's always tons of things um, to go over, like in discovery calls. Um, and, you know, I, I would be on there and like the project manager on my team would be on there like furiously scribing notes. Um, and, and so now it's really nice not to have to do that and to actually listen to people a little bit more. Um, so things like that, uh, that you can kind of do let's say that help you become more efficient and save time, but I wouldn't really say to use AI like for full on content production because it's just, especially, um, you know, long form or long form B2B is even worse. Like it just doesn't, don't copy paste it. It's so bad. You're going to sound like everyone else. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to use it maybe for things like, um, I found it useful for, for coming up with like, um, pitches. So I, I contribute to a lot of marketing platforms. I'm on a lot of podcasts like this. Um, and so I can, it kind of can help me sometimes think of like, how can I talk about this one topic that I specialize in, but like with 10 different angles, you know, which I, I could do that within my own brain, but it'd probably take me a while um, mm -hmm. where AI can be a little bit faster, just kind of like giving me some more options. So there I found it, uh, you know, um, to be more useful, but um, I think there's there's going to be a big divergence in, in how AI is used um, between different languages for sure. So I think that's one of the things that we'll we'll still see um, what happens. No one knows. No one knows what's going to happen with AI. <laughs> it's definitely crazy. So I want to kind of talk about like a, a personal reference to you. I mean, obviously, you know, doing my due diligence and reading your background, it was a particular line in a particular article that you said. And I, I want people to understand that they're hearing your story. They're hearing how proficient you are with SEO. And, you know, I think right now, the only hurdle that we really expressed was the hurdle of you being shorted by three points on a, on a German. <laughs> but obviously, I think that was kind of like the cherry on top. Like you, I wanted you to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And I want you to talk about in a paragraph, you had said something along the lines of, very traumatic childhood filled with loss. So I want yeah. you to kind of talk about like how, because I mean, obviously the, who you are right now probably stemmed from that overcoming that particular hurdle. So I want you to talk about that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of our childhoods really make us who we are or or definitely influence who we are today. And I'm, I'm no exception. Um, so when I was uh, six years old, my mom was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, which is a very uh, complex autoimmune disease that there's still no cure for. They don't really know much about it still because um, it's very rare. Uh, there's no, there's hardly even like medications for it still. 
there's just no funding for it, unfortunately. Um, and she um, was in a pretty rapid decline over the next few years. And that was very difficult for my family. Um, from that, I understandably, my dad had a lot of problems trying to cope with that, you know, um, basically trying to become uh, the single parent, uh, because my mom, she couldn't move at all. She got to a point where she couldn't move at all. And she could, um, she could only talk, but, you know, with, with all of the different things happening, um, just her mental state was not in a normal place, you know, like, like a normal functioning human. And so, um, I was actually to get, to get some help. My dad needed some help from uh, my grandparents. And so I was actually kind of co-raised, um, by my grandparents, my mom's uh, parents, they both retired, um, to become her full-time caregivers and they were there with us. And, uh, so there's a lot of difficulty in my childhood, um, that I, growing up in such a remote place, um, and then dealing with this in my family, there was not a lot of options for, um, for going out and socializing and, you know, having a lot of friends and, you know, doing a lot of new experiences. I had to be at home a lot. Um, and I think that has really, um, definitely influenced my obsession with like learning new things and trying to like get out and, and expand my view on the world for sure. That's a big part of it. Um, and then the overachiever side, I think this really comes from everyone in my family is very, very hardworking. Like there's no lazy person in my family. They hardly, they hardly even sit. <laughs> they, yeah, they're always, they're always doing something, you know, even when they're not working, they're still, you know, gardening, fixing something in their house, um, you know, doing something. And so this kind of work ethic was definitely, um, you know, projected to me as, as a young kid and seeing how hard everyone around me worked. And so I think the combination of, I wanted to really do something with my life because my mom went through a lot and I wanted to really make her proud. And the combination of seeing my, you know, how hard my family worked, I, I really wanted to do something worthwhile. And so I always really applied myself at school. Um, I had nearly a four point um, in high school, nearly a four point um, in, uh, in college as well. Uh, I was always you know, the leader of this volunteer group or that volunteer group. Um, I was uh, named uh, the best student in anthropology uh, when I was in college. I'm always, I'm just, you know, always kind of that person who was like wanting to really stay active and do something productive. I'm really not very good at being bored. Like I, I'm not that person that can just, you know, go on vacation and like relax on the beach for five days straight. Like I can do it for maybe one day, but that's about my max. Like I, I need to start, you know, walking around, seeing things, you know, learning new things. Uh, and so this, you know, these, these are good traits, I guess, for running an agency, because I, I would say that you, you do have to be very organized and very like on it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and wanting to do more and wanting to be better. And so that kind of fuels me for sure. And I think that's why in the end, actually going the, the route of um, entrepreneurship was probably very fitting. So it's good I failed that test, you know, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the end. I think everything happens for a reason. And and kind of going back to your earlier days and, and kind of leading to you being very astute, I would say part of who you hang, hung around with was essentially like the books that you were reading. So that kind of led to an imagination, yeah. right? So I want you to kind of talk about like the books that have changed you or made you a better entrepreneur during your journey. So if someone that's listening 
what would that recommendation that that recommendation look like from you? Oh yeah, it's hard to put uh, you know put pin it down to a couple books because I've read so many. Um, but actually, mostly what I have enjoyed reading are uh, autobi- autobiographies. So you know, reading about someone's story and not even necessarily related to business at all, but more just kind of like stories of how they went through something and and how they handled something. Um, I actually, I don't know if it's very inspirational, but I really love David Sedaris. So he's probably one of my favorite writers because he's just so real. Uh, and he's really great too, if you ever listen to his books on on uh, Audible. Um, and I think, especially if you're in marketing, um, you can learn a lot from him about like how to tell a story. Storytelling is super important. Um, but there's, yeah, there's there's lots of authors. I wish I had <laughs> had this off at the top of my head. Uh, ones ones that I I can think of. Um, I did also like in the beginning um, that I read in high school Anne Rand. Um, although she's a bit intense, uh, I don't think that I agree with like all of her perspectives. Uh, but she really goes into um, things like how to handle your emotions and and how you interact with other people and how societies develop, which I think is very interesting as well. Um, going back to like my my interest in anthropology and and how people function and how people think that's an interesting one as well and I I think that probably got me started into thinking about that although I will admit I skipped like the 50 page part like where there's a monologue um you know one of the guys is on is on a you know some rant about how society is corrupt and things like this I did kind of skip that part but that was an interesting one too um Maya Angelou was also I think one of um, one of the ones I really liked a lot. I read a lot of her books. Um, she has uh, an autobiography, but then also fiction stories too. And they're they're both really fantastic, really inspiring. The things that that she went through. Um, I remember reading that in high school. I tried to get my hands on every book she had ever written, um, and that was a really really amazing one. Especially seeing um, as a woman what she had been through and and, and kind of how she had come out on top of that. So. Um, yeah, there's a lot. I, I can send over a list if anyone wants to know more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, just flip it on the other side. Because, I mean, obviously, reading books then turns into the love for technology, right? So, I want you to kind of talk about your tech stack. And in, in SEO, there's always a variable of tech stacks to kind of get someone from point A to point B. So, if you can kind of think about maybe your top three or five software that you use that you would not be able to do what you're doing at scale if you didn't have access to Yes. Um, so I would say the first one, 100% is Asana. Um, and this is a project management tool that literally uh, my entire agency is built around. Um, we we are to the point that we probably 90% of our communication is in this tool. We don't really send emails to each other that often. We do to clients um, because our we can't expect our clients to become super efficient in Asana like we are. Um, but internally as a team, um, the majority of the business is is in Asana because that really helps us understand, um, you know, when things need to be uh, delivered by what specific things. Our goal was um, when we when we initially tr- um, transitioned from Asana, we were using spreadsheets, and there was just a lot of confusion about who was supposed to do what and by when, and you know, this process of taking so long to figure out what you need to do in the morning when you start work that takes like a huge amount of time. And so if you can just jump in and like you know what you already have to do, you know, when it's due by, you have a very good brief that's set specifically there, you know, the project it applies to all of that can be in Asana. So I think that's probably 
the number one. Um, as a marketing agency, uh, I would say that probably the next one is Google Analytics or GA4 now would be the next one. Um, that's probably every business uses that or uses some sort of analytics platform. Um, we use that for all of our reporting um, for all the different projects um, we do with clients um, and for our own marketing as well. So that's definitely something we couldn't live without. Um, for SEO, of course, some SEO tool. We have kind of gone through a lot of different evolutions about uh, which tool we use. We kind of tend to like hop around. Um, that's one one kind of interesting thing about doing SEO agency side is you kind of need to know a lot of different tools uh, to apply them to different contexts. So probably our favorite is SimRush, but there are still some limitations there. Um, like if you need a, a bigger, um, you know, data on a bigger website, or if you if you need more like technical SEO data, there are other tools that are a little bit more suitable there. So I I can just say like if I lump together some SEO tool, <laughs> depending on the context, we really couldn't do without that. Um, what would be next? I don't know if it counts, but LinkedIn, <laughs> if that counts as a technology. Um, we do a lot there, um, both within like organic lead gen, um, as well as ads, um, ads for ourselves and for our clients. There's just so much opportunity on LinkedIn. That's how we also started talking. Um, right. So there's a lot on LinkedIn as well. That's super useful. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that I would really recommend to use um i guess maybe this new one that we're using for for the meeting note taking honestly which i i'm surprised it was so good um one of our project managers recommended it and i was really skeptical at first because i'm afraid of ai like i don't know doing strange things that i don't understand um but i have to say it's a really good one uh we use sybil and um it's useful because it it um it records and it provides a transcript which is great um if we need to send it like to a client they want a copy of it but the best thing is the summaries and the action points afterwards uh because when we have a meeting um you know our our project manager might um take away like 10 different tasks from that meeting that they have to do and beforehand we were you know trying to write this all down by hand um we don't type it normally because if you're typing the whole time while someone else is speaking, it's very distracting and kind of rude. So we were actually doing all of the note taking by hand, which is you know com complicated and we would miss a lot of stuff. Um, and that's that's helped a lot with that too. And the nice thing that it's recorded uh, is that if you feel like something of the summary that it provides you or what you're supposed to do is wrong, you can look back at the recording and double check like, okay, here's what I need to do. Very cool, very cool. So I, I want you to kind of talk to the listener, right? And I want you to kind of think of it from the standpoint with you being younger, growing up in, in the Western hemisphere, on the West side of the Western hemisphere, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and this to say is a, is a 10 year old girl that's, that's on the farm right now. And let's just say for some reason, she's listening to this podcast. What words of wisdom would you want her to hear from you considering that she may be living a lifestyle that you've lived, but then you took that opportunity and turned it into what you have now? Yeah, I would just say, like, don't worry so much that you aren't going to do anything that you, that you're going to fail or you're not going to go anywhere. Like you're, you're going to go so much further than you ever thought. And you're going to have so many really cool experiences and meet really cool people. And just, you know, be excited about that. 
be really excited and, and, you know, don't be so afraid of failure. I think I, I still need to hear that <laughs> nowadays probably. Um, so that's, that's definitely my biggest piece of advice to myself is, you know, you'll, you will find a way and you're going to have a really awesome time in the meantime. So don't worry so much that things are going to go wrong. Very cool. So with that, I mean, how does someone get in contact with you? Where, where do you want to send them on social media, LinkedIn, your website? Um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best way. Um, so feel free to DM me if you'd like to chat further. Um, if you'd like to look at the website, it's asmarketingagency.com. Um, you can find all of our contact information there, um, email as well. So, but whatever works, I'm 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 available. <laughs> Very cool. So that kind of leads me to a bonus question. And I want to know if you had an opportunity to spend 24 hours with anyone, someone that you may have met, someone that you always wanted to meet, someone that's from your past that died before you were born, who would that person be and why? Yeah. Um, so it's a bit emotional, but I would have to say my mom <laughs> um, because I didn't get to spend time with her really um even though she she passed away when i was 12 she was sick for so long even years before she was diagnosed that i didn't really get to know her um and there are just so many things that i would ask her i only know of her really from other people what other people tell me about her but you know i I'd, I'd love to to just ask her lots of things about life lots of things about being a woman being married um you know, why she did things the way she did. Uh, and just, just to, just to listen to her advice. Hmm. So like, let's just, let's just unpack that some more. So if you had an opportunity to talk to your mom and if you had to choose one of your greatest achievements to kind of have that conversation with her, with her, what would be your greatest achievement to date that you would like your mom to know about? I would tell her that I have done everything possible to make her proud and I know that that has kind of involved me living very far away, um, but I did manage to move to a new country and learn a new language and establish a whole business, uh, which in Germany is very difficult. There's so much bureaucracy here and no support for entrepreneurs. And, you know, the fact that I've met my husband here and, and have built up a new life and um, have built up something that I enjoy, spending time with people that I enjoy, um, both my friends and the people I work with. Um, and I think that's something to be really proud of that I, that I built a life that I really enjoy and that, and that I'm proud of. Yeah, I, I would think anyone in your shoes would definitely be proud. And, and, you know, I think your mom would be beyond proud considering that you had these setbacks early on in life and then you still use those setbacks to fuel, to put it in a positive light versus being negative and being woe is me. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was never me. I'm, you know, that's the overachiever in me. I can sit and, you know, wallow in some self-pity for a little bit, but any more than a day and I'm like, nope, I got to do something productive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. So going into closing of this podcast, you know, you're pretty familiar with podcasts. You've been on a handful of them. So the little switch up is going to be that now Boston Cage is your show and I'm your guest. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Um, yes, uh, I guess. Can I ask first about uh, your your Yoda, uh, your Yoda head in the back? 
background in Star Wars, what that has to do with things, because I, I find this very fascinating. Like, I'm I'm into sci-fi as well. And, and so I wondered uh, maybe if you had some similar interests. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny that you brought that up, because I mean, every time I look at it, it's kind of like, if you look at my background has changed, like seasonally for like the past three years, it, it kind of just evolves. And Yoda and, and Dark Vader are just kind of like the yin and yang. I think everything, there's this push and pull, there's a polarity to everything. So even in design and branding, there's always two sides to every coin and business is two sides to every coin. And I always look at them as an angel and a devil on my shoulder, like constantly talking in my ears. So that was more so the symbolism behind it. Obviously, loving Star Wars and loving sci-fi goes hand in hand with it. But I'm at the point now to where I'm so engulfed in like branding my own brand. It's like those are the last two things that are behind me that are not branded as Boston Kings. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like, their the time is probably running short. <laughs> but I think it's good to have some creative points there, you know, and, and not keep everything so boring. You can't see it from my screen super well, but I have, if I can turn the correct way. This is actually a, a handmade um, quilt from Turkey. So I kind of have sure. something there as well. That's a little bit unique. Yeah, so I, li I like that. I, I would keep that there, even if I had branded up my whole background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's, it's it's kind of like with branding, you could do so many different things. Like, if I was to rebrand it, maybe I could brand a Yoda. Like, can I can I put my symbol on Yoda somewhere and put it back there? Like, yeah. that's kind of like variation of what I would do, right? Yep. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, people will resonate with that. So you know, feeling familiar instead of some like strange unknown symbol, it's probably a good approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely a hybrid. It's definitely a hybrid of branding. So I, I definitely appreciate it. Do you have any other questions you'd like to ask? Can Can I ask you like um, technical things, like strategic things? Am I allowed yeah, to? Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so we're actually in the process of starting up our own podcast. We're going to focus on uh, multi-language. Uh, what are your, let's say, like top three things that someone should know when starting a podcast? So the first question is, are you going to be doing interviews or are you going to have a co-host? So we kind of want to do um, NPR style. If okay. you've listened to this, um, it's very like storytelling driven, but then with a little bit of commentary. So I will be kind of like the host and maybe do some commentary. But we want to give uh, the guests to then tell things uh, more in a in a very like um, chronological kind of story format. So not quite like an interview but like describe how they had a certain challenge or problem. And then the, you know, the issues they went through and then, um, you know, talk about that process and, and how that worked for them. Yeah. I would say the key word being host. And I didn't realize that like my first season, like how important of being a host is until I really started diving into like the interviewing process. So what you're describing is essentially that I would say, dive deep into becoming a great host. And what that really means is that if you need to study someone else that you like, like whether it is Oprah or Donahue, doesn't matter, <laughs> study that person, watch their videos. And, and, and prime example is like, I think Oprah just had a new special on either HBO Max or Netflix. And you can kind of see the evolution of how fluent her interviews are now versus the way they were. And obviously the way she takes notes and she uses like the tab note system. And I'm looking at all these little details and I'm just like, like, that's why she is who she is because she's perfected mm. the art of hosting. So I would say start there more so than getting famous um, people to interview or high profile. Because once you get to the high profile individuals, if you suck as a host, 
it's not going to be a good interview, no matter how yeah. good the person is. I mean, if my season one version of essay was to interview Oprah versus season seven version of essay, like there's two different monsters, two different, yeah. two different levels. So I would definitely want season seven to interview her versus season one. So I'll say focus on that. And then second to that is, is do your due diligence, do the research. Um, the only reason why I think like Boston Cage has gotten to the level that it has is because of the nuances and the details that I do in my research. Like most people, they're used to top level. This is what, what you put in the form. This is who you are, yeah. this is your bio. And I always think like those are like the superficial standard things that everyone's going to look at. Like, why don't you dive a little bit deeper and look into their personal accounts? And prime example, a lot of times when I'm doing this research, I'll find an opportunity to find their mom or find their dad or find mm -hmm. their sister. And then I'll click on their sister. Or I'll click on their dad. And believe it or not, if they're relatives, they may have some content about you outside of you that you may not even be thinking about. And then when that comes up on a podcast, like that synergy between those two people becomes a bond because I've, I know that person probably better than some of their friends do at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good advice for sure. That reminds me of um, Stephen Bartlett and his podcast um, for that, that he, he does. A, I listen to that pretty avidly. He does a lot of research beforehand. So I think that's very good advice because he can, he can kind of pull out some very specific questions. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that content becomes original content, which is great for SEO, because, again, if everyone is, is transcribing the audio and all the questions are the same on a podcast and yeah. one podcast that has unique contests with the same person's name, well, by default, you probably get more conversions from that episode versus all the episodes that are saying the same exact thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's very good advice. Cool. Well, I, I definitely appreciate it. I think you, you brought a, a whole new realm of um, technology and SEO to the table to where most people that are a landlocked in their only region, they only think about their native language. But ideally, there's so many different languages in the world. and There's so much different opportunities. Yes. I think that you're diving into a space that I wish more people would take up on that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that, that's what I was saying earlier with like so many things are just so focused on like English standards, but they're there's so many other beautiful languages and cultures, and they deserve just as good of an experience um, as we would put into English. So I hope that everyone can can think about that if they're trying to expand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I would I would say take you up on that and reach out to you, connect to you on LinkedIn, and at least have a conversation about if you're even thinking about going overseas. And again, it doesn't need to be completely far, but just understanding the philosophies that what goes into the cultural differences. I mean, yes, Australia speaks English, but their terminologies and the way they express themselves are completely different than the U.S. Oh, like, yeah. So like you can convert it, but they're going to look at you like, what are you talking about? Because the, the, the terms are, they sound English, but they mean completely different things. Yep, absolutely. Yep. You know, thong being one of them, look up that difference if you're not familiar. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on that note, on that funny note, I, I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. And I think like our audience definitely got great value from you. And I'm looking forward to seeing what other language you're going to learn next. I know you're not done. Four is kind of, eh, that's okay. I see you <laughs> learning something else here really shortly. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know, because first I'd love to just get better at Turkish. Um, I still feel like I'm learning German as well. Uh, I, I'd like to use it more like in my daily life, because so much of my work is in English that I don't get to use it so much. So I, f I feel like, you know, German level goes up and down. And I've kind of lost Spanish too, because of living in Germany. So 
Mm. I'd kind of like to refine more of what I've already learned versus something new. But if I can ever get to that point, probably the next one would be Arabic, mm. um, which is like crazy because that's a whole other uh, alphabet, uh, <laughs> which would be a whole new, uh, a new, whole new journey. But I always think of it in the context of think of all of the new people that I can talk to and that I can learn from. So yeah. again, yeah. it's the obsession of people and culture that I will always have. <laughs> wow. So with that, to the listener, S.A. Grant, over and out. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762-233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss Uncaged are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.